Hello, this is David Isaacson, and you're listening to the Rhetorical Leadership Podcast. In this podcast, we explain what you need to know to give a persuasive and compelling speech and how you can lead people by persuasion. And today, I'm joined by a communications consultant, Daniel Schrutt. He has been a, uh, if I get this correctly, he's been the ESL finalist in the European debates, and he won the national championship in Netherlands for, for debates and also won Best Speaker, and he has made it to the World Finals in the ESL category, is that correct? That is absolutely correct, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, and <laughs> now he's been working for the better part of, what, 10 years? Uh, More or less, yeah. As yeah. a communication consultant uh, for a couple of, uh, um, for Argumentenfabrik, Fleischmann Illard, and now he has his own company called Adren, which yeah. means to the case, right? To the point? Exactly. It's the <laughs> Latin phrase. It's the opposite of ad hominem, which means uh, playing towards the, the people or the crowd. That's, um, yeah. Well, that's absolutely. ad populum, isn't it? And ad hominem is playing on the person. Right? Ah, yes. You know your Latin. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just um, my wife actually learned Latin. Uh, when she was uh, writing her master thesis, she wanted to write it in English instead of German. And yeah. they said, no, but you can write it in Latin if you want to. <laughs> that's how old her university was. That is pretty amazing. That's uh, wow. Older, <laughs> old fashioned, though? you could say. Yeah. 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 Does she still speak it though? Also, uh, she never dinner? spoke it. She could only write it. I think. Anyway. Too bad. Too bad. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So he has a lot of uh, in-depth knowledge about uh, communication and preparing people to give a good speech. Uh, he has taught this to numerous uh, politicians, uh, people in business, and in academia, I believe, also as well. Right. Absolutely, yeah. So the group of people I train, it's mostly politicians. Uh, well, mostly politicians. It's a, a big group. Another big group is people in companies. For example, people preparing for their annual shareholder meeting, but also people from companies preparing to uh, engage in media debates, for example. And then uh, academics also, for example, in to prepare for their defense, right? They have the, right. I don't know how this goes in Norway, but in the Netherlands, at least, you have like a public defense. Yes. Um, where you have other professors asking you difficult questions. And then how do you respond to these difficult questions in such a way that uh, the answer is persuasive so that's um mm -hmm. those are like the the three main categories of people that i uh, once in a while train wow well, that's yeah. uh it's very interesting uh so um i'm obviously on the other side of the coin and uh that uh, my career is almost completely academic although i have some experience from local politics um and that i've found that my theory helps me but uh, sometimes i wish i had more of that experience that you have you know more the the yeah uh, um you know down to earth, what, what actually makes a difference in, in everyday life? What do you actually do of these things? Because uh, as academics, sometimes we can become a little bit too much ivory tower. <laughs> yeah. And we discuss yeah. amongst ourselves, but no one else is listening to the discussion. Uh, so yeah. uh, I appreciate really to uh, get some of your insights uh, today. So first, we're going to be talking about a little bit uh, the practical, uh, a little bit of the handcraft, you could say, of, um, of rhetoric or communications mm -hmm. consulting. Uh, and uh, for my students, for example, they're just preparing now to do uh, their first speech, a five-minute speech that they're supposed to write. It's supposed to be a kind of a TED Talk, um, and then they're supposed to write it, try to memorize it, or find ways of, of uh, memorizing at least enough that they're not just reading it, uh, and give a persuasive presentation of that. Uh, so... What, how, what, tell me a little bit about the uh, process you take with, with your clients. Like what, what do you take them through? How do you coach them? Uh, how do you help them to find the right words to say and then 
uh, remember or be able to perform those uh, effectively. Yeah. So um, I think a key strategy that I use when I'm training, for example, politicians or people for a company who have to pitch their business idea um, is that I make a combination in a sense between what is classically known as invention on the one hand and memory on the other hand. So what I do is I teach people a set of stock issues, so to speak. Um, this is well known from the American debate tradition. So this is like a model that's already something like 150 years old. Um, but every time a politician has a proposal or an idea or someone has a business idea, what they basically do is they take three logical steps, right? They say, you're in the here and now. That's one thing. I want to go somewhere and this is my means to go there. And then um, so those are the, the three main areas in a sense, right? The, the right. status quo, the future the and destination the means and the way or the bridge there. between these two. Mm. So um, what I basically do is I help people visualize for themselves, um, in that case, what is their here and now and what is their means or their bridge to get from the here and now to the there and then. And then from there on also to verbally be able to, to paint a picture of that there and then where they basically want to go. Right. And, and if you start like that, um, yeah, then it's it, it becomes almost it becomes so easy to memorize for yourself what you actually want to do that you don't need to write out your speech anymore. You don't need to like word for word say like, this is where we are, this is a problem, uh, this is my improvement, and that's what it will end up looking like. If you can actually see it in front of you, um, you don't have to memorize basically. So yeah. I mean, yeah. or that's that's one way that you're memorizing, right? Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. You, you described that, they, that you were kind of like uh, the bridge and then you were kind of landing on this beautiful island in some way, right? The kind of the dream, the vision. Well, well that's exactly is the point, right? Um, uh, there is a group of politicians in the Netherlands, I think there's also maybe in Norway, who are more like the reasonable middle and they very much have the inclination to always um, make their language very much policy oriented and very detailed and very dry in a sense. So mm -hmm. Um, this model, I, we call it the bridge model also, um, is basically, um, it teaches you one, there's the logic, of course, from here to, uh, from here and now to there and then via bridge. But at the same time, I also try to spice people up a bit by making them realize that the here and now is really a scary place you want to leave from. You don't like it here and now. <laughs> and the there and then is really that beautiful future island in which you can end up, uh, can end up and everyone will be happy in a sense. So right. there, there's a lot of uh, memories or echoes from, for example, Martin Luther King there who says, I have a dream, right? That's the, the future where you go to and the policy you propose. That's the means of getting to that future. So that's um, definitely, yeah, it, it's it's supposed to be a lot of pathos appeal there also, definitely, yeah. Right, and let me be, be a little bit, um, I mean, in some ways we, we talk about pathos often as the, um, the less scientific, right? And when you come to kind of the age of, of, not age of reason, but we come to the positivists, for example, um, and uh, a lot of other kind of scientific vocabulary, what you really want to, or Francis Bacon, I think, talked about this a lot, and Jeremy Bentham, uh, uh, that uh, they wanted to kind of make language as objective as possible, and the way to do that was just kind of just expunge every emotionally laden word in the English language <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and make that the <laughs> basis of debate. The thing is, of course, that the, the situated perspective... Um, is politics right? I mean, yeah. there's uh, there are a few things that are objectively um, good, no matter what experience of life that you've had. Uh, but uh, there are actually quite few. Some people would say that uh, riches or wealth is not objectively good. Uh, some people would say, right. There's um, so engaging the emotions is always a part uh, of any kind of politics. 
but it can be abused, right? We we all know that, and so that's why uh, a lot of people, uh, especially in the in Europe, I think less in America because it's just the world they flow in. It seems like in politics there, uh, mm-hmm. but are more skeptical, I guess, to use this uh, this more visionary um, language to get people excited. Yeah, yeah. To respond to the last remark that you kind of made right now, I think um, in the at least in the Netherlands, and I think in Europe in general, uh, of course, there's also uh, an incredible historical perspective to that, right? I mean, the reason why um, in the Netherlands at least we don't trust rhetoric all that much, um, it, it has a long history. Of course, Hitler plays a very long, very important role in that. Uh, we saw him as the demagogue that whipped up a crowd into a frenzy to do the most horrible, unspeakable acts that history could ever think of. So that's one element. Before that, there's even an older element, and that's actually a few Dutch researchers have researched this also. Uh, I think Jaap van Rijn is one of them. Um, He wrote a book called The Century of Debate, and he analyzed in the 19th century um, how in, I think, France, in England, and in the Netherlands, they actually try to do debate, parliamentary debate, like literally in parliament. And he found one key insight for the Netherlands already is that um, the continental uh, folk, the continental parliamentarians, were so much scared by the revolutions, not just the 1848 revolution, but also by Napoleon beforehand, right, that they were uh, kind of scared for the spoken word. So, so they tried to, to every time there was an, uh, an inch inching towards a parliamentary debate, they tried to make it more technical because they said, well, it's going to lead to revolution. It's going to lead to people following big leaders and then uh, destroying an entire continent. Um, so we don't want that, right? So, so, so I think there's a lot of history between uh, in Europe also of being a little bit afraid of rhetoric. That's uh, absolutely true. It's um, interesting, though. Yeah. Whereas in Eng- England, you had obviously Churchill uh, with his powerful counter rhetoric, you could say, against yeah. uh, against Hitler. So, well, same that's with Roosevelt exactly. in America, right? Exactly. And I think this is exactly the the mistake maybe that Europeans made is that we were so much, uh, of course, it's difficult to generalize for all of Europeans. I mean, I don't know what the specific rhetorical tradition is in, I don't know, Greece or I mean, there might be, I mean, that's even older, of course, than we what we have right, in the right. Netherlands or maybe in Norway. I don't know. Um, but I think it is a mistake to have said as a political culture that we should stay away from the passionate, from the like the high level rhetoric, uh, simply because we think it leads to dictatorship. Right. It could lead to dictatorship, but you could also uh, maybe inspire the other politicians on the other side to be equally or more inspiring so that they can also whip up a crowd into a frenzy um, towards a better goal, a, yeah. a definitely better goal. And I think right? a frenzy is perhaps the wrong word, right? Because frenzied mind is kind of madness. But you'd say uh, engage, True. get people engaged in a good cause, right? True. Uh, yeah. Aristotle, True. I think, has has one of my favorite quotes on this, where he says, "Truth and justice are naturally stronger than their counterparts, and the only way they can lose if is if they um, the ones who are defending them are not as well rhetorically trained or as not as good, uh, are, are as not as able as the ones who yeah. are uh, defending injustice and uh, and." Uh, and uh, lies, essentially. Yeah, no, absolutely true. Absolutely true. And um, I think this is a, um, it's a criticism that often is leveled against my profession. Like for many people, uh, most of the things I do is what is classically known as media training. So um, you're for a company and you expect to be interviewed for, uh, by a journalist or something like that. And then I train people to, to do that talk. And then, uh, like a prejudice against my profession is a lot that people say things like you teach people to, to learn how to lie, or you teach 
people how to make something that is uh, immoral or unethical, how to make it more popular or make it seem more ethical. Um, And that's definitely not the case. That's, uh, I mean, definitely not the case, I must say also. Of course, I have an ethical code also as a company also. I'm also a member of all kinds of uh, organizations to make sure that ethical code is actually maintained. Uh, But that's a definite uh, part of uh, how I view the profession also. Absolutely. Yeah. We actually went to very quickly into the second part. Uh, I think I guess I should go back a little bit more to the... Yeah, uh, let's move back. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm yeah. very eager to jump into that part because obviously that's yeah. that's my, or that's uh, the domain I have a lot of uh, interest in also, of course. Uh, but uh, if we look again a little bit more at the, so back to the practical. So we're talking about this bridge, right? Um, yeah. So I guess... Um, do you, uh, could, do you have any uh, kind of examples of people that were able to go through those uh, through those steps, or um, where you know it, it, everything seemed a bit cloudy at first, and then kind of they did these things, and then it became clearer what they were supposed to do? Yeah, uh, well, of course, I can't name names. Yes, uh, of course. This, we yes. have this confidentiality agreement, but there are definitely politicians. Um, and also people who lead companies that actually uh, realized uh, they uh, they use it like this after I trained them like that. Um, and as a matter of fact, well, again, I can't name names, but just two weeks ago, uh, one of my clients from four years ago came back to me and said, well, I had many trainings in between also, but I always come back to this basic principle that you taught me. We have the here and now, we have the there and then, and my company product helps people to get from the here and now to the there and then. So it's definitely something that uh, people keep on getting back to. Um, specifically this person, um, he, it's a, he, uh, so he designed a product that, um, in a sense, tries to revolutionize a product category also. So it's in a sense, it's similar to what, for example, Elon Musk is doing with Tesla, where he tries to have a sustainable type of car, um, to try to replace the unsustainable type of car in a sense. So that's what he's tr- trying to do as well. And what I like about, um, this specific client and this specific type of client also, of which there are, I don't know how it is in Norway, but in the Netherlands, there are a lot of them actually. Yes, on the one hand, they're commercial, so they have something to sell. In this case, it's a product, you, it's like it's a fast moving consumer goods, so it's a product you can buy in any shopping street. Um, but at the same time, uh, he also has very much a kind of like idealistic drive. He's not there to just sell something to you. Um, if he would, he could just use the AIDA model, right? If you talk to salespeople, it's what they always use, attention, interest, desire, action. Um, but, but a specific flavor he wants to also put over his product is that it, it is actually more sustainable. It is actually more healthy. Um, and that's actually also true. Definitely. And it's also something that we helped him with in the beginning. So when he started inventing his line of product, about four to five years ago. Um, I also recommended him to actually get science involved so that scientists could actually say, yes, your product is scientifically proven to be more sustainable, more healthy than the competition. Right. He has that right now. So that's the thing that he can also show in a sense, right? So that's it, the future promise he makes is not just a future promise he makes because he's selling something. It's actually also factually proven to be true. Right. Um, so yeah, that's, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Um. I actually have a very good quote for you that uh, I just ah. thought about as you were saying this about uh, why uh, what you are doing is very well grounded in rhetorical theory. Um, this is what he says, uh, Richard Weaver. Uh, there is ever some discrepancy, however slight, between the situation man is in and the situation he would like to realize. Yeah. His life is therefore characterized by movement towards goals. 
and it is largely the power of rhetoric which influences and governs that movement. Yeah, yeah, this is absolutely true. And, um, well, but before you know it, I mean, I'm going to pour out all the books that I've ever read about this, so I'm not quite sure if you want <laughs> to. <laughs> well, actually, so we, we keep going into the academic domain. I guess we should yeah, yeah, be, uh, again, well, but stay on the But one thing which I think is very, is very interesting about this, though, is... Um, um, how should I put this? Um, so this distinction between the here and now and the goal you're moving towards, I think Weaver is absolutely right in saying this is what the power of rhetoric is. But in my own academic history, I mean, I, I have a master's in political sciences and I had some minors in between where I did policy sciences, also communication sciences. Um, I found this distinction back a lot in, for example, policy sciences, where they say it's, it's the key difference between uh, what a politician does or a civil servant does. That's like the key explanation of it. I also found it back in psychology. Um, but I, I'm not quite sure in, uh, for example, the we talked in the beginning about the idea of stock issues. Um, in a lot of the exposition or explanation or research behind the idea of stock issues, whether we also find it back in the actual current academic tradition of rhetoric. Um, to, to give it, at least this is what I know, but I'm guessing that you know this better. Um, this distinction between goals and the, the situation right now where we are at, you do find it back in Aristotle. Um, it's the basis of his Nicomachean. Uh, Nicomachean ethics. That's, I think, one key element there. Uh, but he also refers to it back on his rhetoric. But then when it comes to um, using this as in the, like in the topic. So if you talk the, the, the entire discussion of topics, we move to Cicero, we move to Quintilian, and then it takes on a very legal flavor. It's always the discussion on is someone guilty, yes or no? And then you have a few standard kind of questions, a few standard kind of like stock issues. But so, so I have no idea. Perhaps we should, uh, for our audience, just uh, explain what we mean by by these uh, topos or these uh, yeah. topics or these stock issues. I'm going a bit too fast, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, as, uh, my understanding of it uh, is that these topics are um, uh, kind of stock characters, stock issues, uh, stock situations, you could say, um, that are uh, you can use to describe the current situation or the current character, right? And so, uh, what do you? What are the different things that you could do? Uh, one of them is, for example, the topos of the tyrant, right? So what could you say about the tyrant? What, what do we know about tyrants in general? Uh, and then you have the six vices of the tyrant, and you can play on those um, and then essentially just use those arguments that are already there against the tyrant to, you know, I wrote one invective, I guess, against Donald Trump like that. Yeah, 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 <laughs> um, nice. You know, yeah. as far as the character goes, right? Um, yeah. You can, uh, and so... You just have to define essentially what kind of speech this is and what's the main issue, and then you can go to these uh, these topics, and they will tell you what you need to, to convince the audience of in order to succeed in that kind of speech, right? Yeah. Is yeah. that? Absolutely, that's what we're talking about. And and to go all the way back to history, as far as I remember, at least, Aristotle defined three genres of rhetoric, right? The, mm -hmm. um, the ceremonial, the, the deliberative, and the judicial. Right. And I think the example you name is very much kind of like almost a ceremonial kind of topics, topic list in a sense. Right. Um, Cicero and Quintilian talked mostly about a judicial kind of topic list. So you have a client who's accused of murder. Uh, what exactly was the case? How should you qualify? it what kind of response does it doesn't fit but to my feeling at least uh, we didn't really have a list of kind of like 
topics, standard stock issues in the deliberative genre studied academically until the Americans came along. I mean, that's at least my feeling right now. Until the Americans came along and from the 19th century onward did define something like the stock issues for the deliberative genre. Um, but this is maybe also a question Such to as, you. I don't could, know. Could you just give a couple is examples there a of those? There or, yeah. Oh, could you just give a couple of examples of those uh, deliberative genre topics? So deliberative genre topics are uh, every time as a whenever whenever you make try to justify a decision for the future. So and, and I think Aristotle maybe is also a little bit muddy in his definitions there because he says it's on the one hand oriented towards the future and on the other hand it's also about values in the here and now. So it's it's somewhat I think uh, difficult. But right. um, what what I think kind of like a good definition of the deliberative genre would be is um, every time you get together with a group of people to decide what to do. So you need to propose a plan. And in that case, for example, the discussions in parliament or the discussions in your local city council, they fall under the genre of deliberative discussion. Um, but similarly, also when you're a company and you're launching a product and you think, is this the good product to launch? Yes or no. Um, it's also a decision to do something. And I would maybe also call that like the deliberative kind of genre. I mean, sense. Aristotle talks about a couple of those. Should we not go to war? Should you go to war? Should we not go to war? Yeah. Uh, should we make yeah. a public expenditure on a certain festival? Should we? Yeah. 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 And yeah. What, what are the possible objections? What are the counter arguments? What do you need to know? What do you need yeah. to be able to prove in order to win that case and so on? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. And um, what I like again about Aristotle's rhetoric also is that um, in chapter one or in book one, he also explains the stuff you need to know. And I think when it comes to this deliberative kind of genre, um, you cannot escape still using logos a lot. Um, for I mean, for example, when it comes to policy making, um, well, let, let's take kind of like a historical example. I think Martin Luther King is a really good example uh, of someone who was incredibly good at the, at the apodictic genre. So he was good at making kind of like, you know, the, the really ceremonial kind of rhetoric that really was like, I have a dream kind of like. Um, unfortunately, of course, it was very difficult for him also to achieve a seat at the table in, let's say, the Senate or in Congress or because it was just a very racist period. Right, right. But by the time that Johnson actually, after Kennedy's death, that he was actually able to uh, launch the Civil Rights Act, um, Johnson also gave a group of pretty impressive kind of speeches that kind of like... Um, overlap between the more ceremonial genre but also the deliberative kind of genre where he talked about the civil rights act where he talked about what people are now allowed to do and what people should not do anymore like for example hinder black people from actually going to the voting office and casting their vote right. um, these kind of things that was his famous two river speech right i don't know if you remember that one mm -hmm. um but he made a really good combination there between the 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 ceremonial kind of speech and the deliberative kind of speech um of which i think we should have definitely a lot more but um but yeah, so coming back to my key question, I think the Americans have been really good in identifying, let's say, a, a set of stock issues that you can always ask um, in the deliberative genre. Um, I've translated that to the model I just gave you before, right? The here and now, the mm -hmm. future, and right. the bridge. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I'm not quite sure if in the academic world there is a big tradition on analyzing it along these lines. So that's a question to you, maybe, David. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I think we're very often... Uh, perhaps busy with kind of higher order issues in some ways. Uh, and uh, so when it comes to like directly working on invention, I don't think there's that much work that's been done uh, past the, uh, past beyond the classical rhetoric and then obviously a little bit of the modern Perelman, yeah. uh, Kenneth Burke and so on. Uh, because we very often um, 
focus more on larger societal issues rather than the direct speech making in one moment uh, of time. So yeah. I, I'd actually like to just pose you kind of a question. So, so say I'm now I am a uh, business um, uh, I'm a uh, business consultant or perhaps a lower order manager, and I have found this problem in our company why we are underperforming. This is what the, the students are facing as their final exam. I have found this issue uh, with our company. This is why we're underperforming. We are losing clients. We're losing money. Um, and if we can only do this one thing, which takes some investment, but it actually, uh, what I, I would agree, I would argue uh, the investment is far lower than the cost of not doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I have to obviously convince the board uh, that, look, even though we're losing money right now, it's still actually better to spend some money rather than start laying off staff, for example, uh, right now. And we can fix this. We can turn it around. How do I go about uh, preparing a presentation yeah. like that? Yeah. Well, uh, this is. Um, I get these questions you're, a lot. You're definitely. my. You're my consultant now. Yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely get these questions a lot. So I, I hired you for one. for ten minutes. <laughs> yeah, that's good. No, that's good. It's uh, yeah, it's gonna be free for today, so that's nice. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not gonna send you an invoice. That, after. That's why I did this podcast. So I can get. Free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no, so I, I definitely I get this question a lot from clients. Right? How can you sell your own ideas within your company? In a sense. So step number one is um, you said you want to prepare your arguments, and then step number one definitely is. Um, get your house in order as in make sure that you have your arguments ready and how do you get your arguments ready well very simple um it's just uh prepare these arguments in for your uh, just a document for yourself um we often call this a position paper um so it depends on also what areas you're in but usually it is called a position paper and the requirements for this is it shouldn't be much more than one or two pages so it needs to be short and it needs to contain in something like kind of like a narrative kind of analysis all the basic arguments that you want to make. Now, whilst you're busy writing this, of course, are you still there? I suddenly I see am that still you're... there. I'm yes. just uh, getting a little bit metallic sound. And so I was wondering if perhaps the uh, online connection is not good enough. And so if I um, cut out the video, maybe that would be better. I'm not yeah, quite sure. Very good. Yeah. On my side, it still looks good, the connection. So yeah, I'm, I'm just, just, I'm just getting the uh, kind of red on the bars here sometimes where yeah. it's uh, with sound. Yeah, um, I have four bars here, so I'm kay. just... Uh, yeah. Is it okay if I continue here? Yes, is that, just uh, continue. Yeah, yep. all right. Um, so, um, so I was telling you, first write a position paper, and the position paper should be a somewhat narrative, but at the same time, logical analysis of, uh, again, the three steps. Um, what your uh, what the problem is, what you think is happening in the here and now, where you want to go, and then what specifically is your policy proposal. You could depending on the situation, also include a comparative analysis where you say there are three different ways to go about to achieve this goal. Um, method number one is my favorite method and method number two and three. These are two key arguments against method number two and three. The key still is to make sure that you make these arguments shortly. Um, so it needs to be a short paper. And it's just a short paper you have um, in the back of your mind. You just prepare to go back to all the time whenever you're having a discussion. So would you actually write this out? 
Yeah, yeah. That's and uh, this is something that's um, um, I got this from the field of public affairs. Um, public affairs is what is uh, popularly people call this lobbying. So uh, what lobbyists do is they always prepare for themselves before they start a campaign. They prepare for themselves again what is called a position paper, um, and and all the research also um, goes into that, right? So again, the document needs to be short, but of course you can reference analysis also that you make somewhere else. So um, you can say like um, you can keep on the back of your mind or in the same folder on your laptop you can have like all kinds of reports all kinds of analysis um all kinds of other stuff ready to make sure that you have proof for your points also. right so study study the issue and make sure you kind of write out this is why yeah. i believe it's yeah, yeah. I, 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 this is the right solution yeah mm-hmm. yeah Exactly. Yeah. Um, then from there on, um, the next step becomes find your moments. So within an organization, um, th- and this is maybe this is where classical rhetoric diverges a bit from what we do today or what we do I- in companies a lot uh, these days. Um, there are almost never moments anymore where you can actually have a speech. Sometimes you can, right? But most of the times, there's not many companies who actually have this kind of a ritual moments where the middle management can come up to the board and have their speeches one by one. Sometimes they do still, but mostly these kind of things, they happen in between. So what you then need to do next to preparing the content of your arguments is um, make what is called a stakeholder analysis. And basically, that's an analysis of, um, call it an audience analysis, where you just basically, and you can do this in Excel, where you draw up a list of all the people you want to persuade and need to persuade and try and chart a little bit like uh, are they do you think they will be against or in favor do you think they will doubt do you think what kind of questions would they come up with these kind of things and then very good it, again depends on like the, the the company that you're in and the way the decision structure works mm-hmm. um, but at least in the Netherlands uh, nine times out of ten it is more important before you actually start pitching publicly in your company that you already informally draw in the network beforehand so um, so you know that means walking up to the CEO walking up to the board of directors and then informally during a coffee break or something uh, you know just you know uh, target a bit and let, take the room temperature a bit see if your idea um, how much does it fly yes or no and then right. you can refer back to the arguments you prepared of course right you can ask mm-hmm. a question and they go like oh that's a good one never thought about that oh how about that then is there a question back and then you have your answer ready so so you try to do it informally and only then do you make a formal moment where the decision actually gets made right because because so, yeah. the, then you usually come to the center where place where you give a presentation but it's not a kind of uh, very often it's not as high stakes because you know that you have at least half of them with you already or kind of along your lines, but yeah. they just want yeah. to see the whole thing spelled out kind of thing. Exactly, right. exactly. And uh, again, I'm, it might be that this is a very Dutch thing to do, right? We have this, uh, I don't know what the political culture in, in Norway is like, uh, but we have the so-called polder model. So um, for us Dutch people, um, in both in business culture, but also in political culture, it is incredibly important to make sure that a decision is kind of like already made before you have the, the formal moment. So th- there are typical Dutch words like, for example, draagvlak. Uh, McKinsey, the consulting firm, calls this buy-in. Um, so that means that you already make sure that uh, a significant group of your stakeholders, decision makers, that they already that you already know beforehand uh, what their opinion is of, about the proposal that you're going to make. Yeah, and uh, it's in some ways less confrontational, right? More kind of like, I mean, exactly. you could say to a certain extent more backroom deals, but you know, <laughs> but uh, they yes. Uh, 
But yeah. the, but uh, as far as like, so when you get to Parliament, it's already decided who's going to be voting on yeah. yes and who's yeah. going to be voting no, right? So it's yeah. less exciting in that way because the work has been done before. You've already counted the votes. You've already got, uh, you know, you already know what's yeah. going on and the rest is just kind of a show for the television or whatever. Yeah, in a sense, yes, and in a sense, no. Um, but this is also then, if I want to talk longer about this, we're turning into yeah, the field yeah, of political yeah. science. <laughs> but yeah, so, if I, um, so find your moments. Uh, that would be uh, Kairos, right? That kind of exactly. opportune moment, yeah. right? And the opportune yeah. moment for when yeah. minds can change. And don't yeah. miss that moment and, and make sure you spend your rhetorical energy on the moments where you actually can make a difference. Yeah. And, and and just to combine these two words, right? So you have this classical idea of kairos, and at the same time, we also have these things that happen in political decision-making, for example. Right. Um, I think in political science or policy sciences, there's a, a stream of research right now. It was started by a guy called John Kingdon. It was called Agendas, Alternatives, and Public Policy. Um, it was called the garbage can of decision making, and you use the word backroom deals to to describe what happens a lot in politics. But actually, he found out during the eighties that um, what happens a lot in politics, indeed, you could describe from an outside perspective as backroom deals. But there's actually a good reason why it is backroom deals. So one of the things he found, for example, um, is decision making is nothing more than creating a moment um, in which the decision makers feel two things: one is there's an urgent problem and two there's a solution ready at hand so that's what kairos is right you need to right. create a moment where you have enough of the decision makers together and the decision makers need to say out loud yes there's a problem and yes this is a solution right. but on a societal level what we perceive as a problem is one stream of attention so to speak and what we perceive as solutions is also a different stream of attention so to speak so, so he analyzed, he said, well, when it comes to the important decisions that were being made back then in the 80s that he was analyzing, he said, it's very interesting, right? So at a certain point, you have this window of opportunity. The phrase window of opportunity actually comes from that book that he wrote. Um, you have this window of opportunity, and then you have politicians voting for a proposal. But where did the proposal come from? Well, specifically, he found out the proposal actually came from the policymakers who, in the decades, literally decades before that decision were made, we're talking to the field itself. So, for example, if, if it was transport regulations or healthcare regulations, um, it was policymakers, civil servants, talking a lot with the field itself, coming up with new kinds of ideas, trying to see if this is a good solution, that is a good solution, this is a good way to come about. And then at a certain point, that issue becomes hot. And then, in a sense, the decision makers, the politicians, just select at that point, because the issue is hot, select at that point the, the, the specific policy they want to propose right. it seems then to the outside mind it seems like a backroom backroom deal because there's so many people have been talking about this already whereas as in fact it's just how the democratic process in a sense goes right. well this was a long rant i'm not quite yeah, sure yeah. if i <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> did i lose you All there right. or <laughs> in, in, in either case uh, so uh, so find your moments uh, yeah. and those moments may very often be you know uh, at you know at lunch or uh, yeah. at a retreat yeah. rather than uh, you know, in the in the boardroom, uh, yeah, with with the high stakes presentation. Um, so find your moments. Uh, so first, get your house in order. Make sure that you've you've made it clear why you want this. You got done your research, uh, yeah. and then find your moments for when to present these things. Um, and then say, but you you do need to. Um, you, so you've got say uh, half or or at least some people aboard, 
already. You've or everyone knows about the issue. Uh, yeah. But now they said, okay, well, but uh, come, uh, let's uh, have a general meeting of the senior management, for example, or the board, um, and uh, present your case as you have to me. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, but perhaps with some more details, and uh, and uh, we'll look at it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. for those presentations, I guess so. You've you've got your you got your own kind of okay. This is why I want to do this. Uh, but there are something as a difference between okay. Well, how am I going to present it though? Because the yeah. way I'm thinking isn't necessarily what other people think. They may have other concerns, etc. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um yeah, so, so my answer to that would be if someone comes up and says, um, I really want you to prepare this, then I think a key thing that we do is always just rehearse a lot um, and then give a lot of feedback. So um, depending on the situation, one thing we do often is uh, we bring along a camera, we bring along a professional production team, um, and we really put the pressure on you. So you, uh, um, you do the presentation. Um, we pretend to be the most nasty board member that you can think about, and then... Uh, uh, you do your story, and then we break it down. We try. <laughs> we don't always try to make our clients cry, but you know, we we do put the pressure on you a lot. Um, and the idea is that if you can withstand the pressure that uh, we as as trainers give you, then you'll be able to uh, to just make it everywhere. It's like uh, we we're a bit like New York. If you can make it with us, you can make it anywhere. That's right. Um, okay. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. So you, you, um, in some ways, you give them the nightmare scenario already, and it's like, see, you did that, and yeah. anything will yeah. be better than that. So yeah. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and it depends also on the question that the person is actually asking. And this is something that for clients we have to uh, is also thing we have to figure out all the time in the process whilst we're busy taking on a client. So sometimes a client could say, for example, that they're expecting a lot of resistance, um, but that's not the case. It might be that this just their way of saying that they actually have a fear of public speaking. Mm. Um, and if that is the case, and of course our approach is totally different because then we, uh, we do a lot more exercises to build up more confidence. So one of the examples that we then do for is um, we make them do several practice rounds, something maybe also with a public speech somewhere, um, have an open course in which there's other people also as a public, so that they can actually speak in front of a crowd, um, have them do more fun exercises. So it, it really depends on like a, what the question behind the question is in a sense. And that's one of the difficult things as a consultant also. You always have to ask uh, and ask again and ask why again mm -hmm. to figure out what is really the question that someone is actually asking you when they come to you for advice. Um, but so, it, so it, it practice, practice, practice again with audience. Yeah. You, you guys yeah. give the feedback. Yeah, uh, what about definitely. getting from that first stage, though? I mean, obviously, people have different communication abilities from beforehand, uh, but you're just getting from that first stage, okay, I've written up my analysis of this and why yeah. I want this, but um, how do I then get to make it to a persuasive presentation for the board, and how do I then memorize it or kind of learn it, internalize it uh, to the level where I won't be standing there and kind of just frozen it's like uh i have no idea what i was going to say yeah 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 so so again practice and um for specific problems we always give specific advice so um if someone says for example so uh, do, do they do they memorize it or just memorize the main talking points or what do you what do you usually it's, find to be most effective it's it's somewhere in between um so what most of our clients do is they eventually uh they first write out a speech literally um, then we practice it a lot, and then what they need when they're actually giving the speech is only
only the talking points because they reformulated what they wanted to say so often um, that they have like five to ten sentences for every message they want to give. They have it ready at their mind. So they right. usually write it out first. Then we boil it down to talking points. And then uh, that's the only thing they usually use at their uh, at their speech. And then they, so they, do they have a cue card or just uh, use like cue cards? Yeah, yeah usually cue cards. Cue cards. Mm -hmm. um, with some clients, what I also do is I use a bit of, um, even though I, it's totally unscientific, uh, but it works like a charm, is uh, <laughs> use a little bit of uh, neurolinguistic programming techniques. So uh, with some clients, I'm able, uh, if they have like the, you know, if they have the wherewithal to deal with this, um, they can memorize a talk of, let's say, 15 minutes or, or half an hour uh, by uh, projecting them using like mnemonic devices. Um, on their fingers, for example. So they say, my story has four key parts. Then, uh, you know, the, the pointing finger, the index finger is mm. point one, right. middle finger is point two, ring finger point three, pink is point four, something like that, right? right and then, right, they, right. And then they, they use it like that. When they're, and when they put that out, of course, you don't want them to just extend one finger at a time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. when they no, yeah. <laughs> when they when they you know, put them out like with that. the index finger or that's not really a problem but it becomes difficult after that right exactly but, but uh, yeah. so but when when they then extend that finger kind of then then the, that triggers for them this is my point that's yeah. what it was yeah this so i often advise them to then just slightly uh a little not so much inside but maybe outside um rub their thumb over the fingers that they're at at that point for example right um, okay yeah. so you can yeah. remember i am at this one i'm at this one i'm at this one i'm at yeah, this one I'm exactly mm -hmm. but i have to emphasize also again um the key there at this point also is memorization becomes a lot easier if you use visualization and if you want to use visualization then again the the threefold step right the here and now the there and then and the bridge in between mm -hmm. that is maybe be the the easiest way to visualize it for yourself right then so do you, some, do you some sometimes like make sure do you yeah, sometimes have them like try to almost like see it in their minds yeah 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 no definitely that's not almost just literally definitely for example with the like do they have like details of the bridge like seagulls sitting yeah. on it and stuff like that <laughs> yeah um so yeah so um, we use amplification to uh, to make sure that people actually memorize this so one thing that we do for example uh with politicians and we we've done this um well national elections are coming up so that's a, a thing we're going to do a lot more often uh, within the coming months uh, but in the last provincial elections, there was a group of politicians who we just, we made them walk through this exercise. So we say, we said, hypothetically speaking, you're in a debate and uh, the way things always go at the local level, um, the preparation is always bad. So you're in, a, yeah. in, in an election debate, you have no idea what the host is going to ask you, what kind of questions the public is going to ask you. So uh, the exercise right now is this, I'm the host and um, you're in this provincial election. Um, what is your opinion on infrastructure? What is your opinion on housing? Um, so then they have to just improvise and say, again, use the here and now, the there and then and the bridge. But then we force them also to take it a step further to actually also um, uh, use, like to amplify it by saying, for example, so if they say, when it comes to housing in my province, I see a lot of blah, 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 blah. They literally need to use the word see also to paint a picture in the mind of the audience. Yep. And then after the exercise, I turn this back and I say, well, this is also a thing you can use in preparation. Um, of course, it's good to have your facts and figures ready about how many people are not able to buy a house, how many people um, pay too much for their house or what the quality of housing is, these kinds right. of things. 
things, right. but it, it's easier for you to remember it if you make a picture in your mind of the exemplary bad house that you actually want to solve as a problem. And if mm. you then see it, and if you can say, I'm pointing towards the city of, well, what's it going to be? Uh, I don't know, Groningen. I don't know, good houses in Groningen, actually. But, uh, you know, <laughs> any kind of city, if you can actually see that in your mind, yep. from there on, it is incredibly easy to memorize also. And then from there on, if you see the picture of that house in your mind, then the, fa the facts and figures behind that, they will come to you automatically when you're giving that speech. Mm -hmm. So uh, it sounds like a very, some very interesting and very useful tools there. Um, I guess uh, this is where I would like to, uh, to kind of create a bridge uh, towards uh, the promised land of uh, rhetorical theory. Yeah, <laughs> nice one. <laughs> well done. <laughs> yeah. Where, uh, because obviously as academics, we work a lot on rhetorical theory. Um, and uh, in the world in general now, you want everything to be evidence-based or at least to, well, theory-based. Um, and so uh, what are the... Um, What's this kind of scientific or academic work that you s that you encounter a lot or have encountered a lot um, when you were working in these consulting firms, for example, uh, yeah. that people used as the basis for this is going to work, right? You always have to have a kind of a theoretical frame of this is going to work because it's based on on this theory. This is the theory of communication that's kind of at the basis for these practices. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of the theory that is actually um, practically employed, uh, it used to be a lot of from the field of psychology. So, uh, so for example, Cialdini is, I think, a favorite of many people. Uh, but before that, there, was, uh, there were all kinds of psychologists doing this. And one of the methods that was used a lot was, for example, things like focus group testing. So a lot of politicians, they, um, whenever they do a speech, they have a focus group tested. Um, and then from there on, they, go, they continue. Right. A thing that you hear a lot these days is uh, framing. So the book by Daniel Kahneman, mm -hmm. uh, Thinking Fast and Slow It Is, um, that's a book that gets thrown around a, ro a lot. And then from there on, what you have also is added to it, uh, nudge theories. So uh, framing talks a little bit about how you use your words to portray the risks and benefits that you have for a decision. So that's one thing. Mm -hmm. um, but from there on out, you also have like nudge theory where you try to make a decision seem easier for the other side so that you don't even... Uh, and that's the part I don't like all that much about nudge theory. But the idea about nudge theory is that you don't even ask someone to make a decision. Right. In a sense, you pre-select or pre-design the environment around people in such a way that they make the decision that they w that you want them to make. Right. So, so yeah. by not making a decision, you'll make the decision that I want. Right. Yeah. So a, a they, key they, example, they talk about yeah, the, go, go ahead. They, they yeah. talk to just to where I've encountered that. Right. Is um, organ donors. Right. So they yeah. had um, you could uh, either sign up if you wanted to become a, an organ donor or you had a form where it said if you don't say no you'll become an organ donor <laughs> yeah <laughs> right yeah. and uh, the difference in levels of organ donors in the countries where that was kind of the default uh was close to 60 percent versus those who volunteered to donate the organs when they died was 15 percent or 10 percent or something like that right yeah um yeah. And that's uh, the kind of basis I find from that is that the people are lazy <laughs> and yeah. just, says, just say, okay, I've, uh, I've bought this pizza for us. That's what we're going to have for dinner. Instead of saying, what are you going to have for dinner? Yeah. Right. The people be yeah. like, okay, the pizza's already there. I'm going to take it. Um, yeah. Instead of oh, all these decisions about what are we going to have for dinner? I don't know True. what I want to do. But just yeah. something, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so 
I think in popular discussions right now, um, the implication is definitely that when you talk about framing and nudge theory, um, that indeed that there's like an, a, an underlying assumption that people are just lazy and stupid and they always make like the most uh, animalistic kind of decision. I think if you go back to where this group of theories basically came from, uh, as Kahneman also says in his book, um, he didn't think of it himself. It's a standard model from the field of social psychology. Um, it's called dual process theory. And it, and basically it, it sounds very behavioristic, I can say, just in general. But Yeah, but behavioristic in a mm -hmm. sense. But, but what Kahneman so emphasizes... Dual, dual process theory, yep, yep. Yeah, so what he what he emphasizes a lot in in that book, Thinking Fast and Slow, is that we have these. It's dual process, right? So we have two modes of thinking. Um, just the thinking mode, like the reflective kind of mode, that is just a more effortful kind of mode. Um, but that doesn't have to stop anyone from actually engaging that mode, also, or to learn how to become more effective in that mode. Right. So, uh, so. In a sense, the dual process theory says, um, if you take oh, take the history of psychology, of course, there's this distinction between behavioralism on the one hand and more cognitive approaches on the other hand. Basically, dual process theory says you have two approaches at the same time. We have two souls in our breast, to a quote Faust in a sense, to, so to speak. Right. Um, but which one is the one that grows is maybe the one that you give the most attention to and the most that you train the most and most um, feed the most in a sense, right? And, and, and so... so the two different ones, if I understand correctly, is so the one is the more thinking mode where you're able to be more rational, right? Yeah. And the other one is um, a little bit what uh, Cialdini called the click were, but kind of these like uh, almost uh, learned responses, right? Exactly. Like these automatic responses. You hear yeah. if a a loud sound sound behind you, you jump. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. there's got to be some source for that sound. If it's loud, it could be big. This is something yeah. that's going to hit me or some hurt hurt me in some kind of way, right? Yeah, um, yeah exactly. th These just like almost automatic responses, not quite because there is still a cognitive process there, um, but it's it's uh, much closer to this kind of yeah this kind of um, uh, unthinking, almost instinctive, reactive. Uh, do I get that yeah. right? Like that's that's kind yeah, of yeah no. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Daniel Kahneman describes it as uh, two systems theory. Um, and from there on, there's all kinds of metaphors that you've probably seen uh, going around the internet also based on this. So one famous metaphor is that um, the, the system one, the more intuitive kind of system, is a little bit like the elephant. And then you have system two, which is the more reflective system, is the elephant rider. And of course, it's silly to think that the elephant rider, in a sense, has more power or more influence over what the elephant is very to do. <laughs> Exa yeah, exactly. Right. So it's, uh, you know, the, the elephant rider looks like he's in charge, but he actually isn't. But what the elephant rider can do sometimes is maybe edge the elephant towards a little bit of a different kind of direction. So that's kind of like a that's that's more or less the the kind of like metaphor that uh, that you can kind of like remember when it comes to system one and system two. So that's um, yeah. And absolutely. so and so obviously this is one of the problems where um, just, just describing the reality in a certain way as Kahneman does. Uh, yeah. has certain implications, right? So yeah. a uh, a um, capitalist competitive uh, winner-take-all uh, election consulting business, mm -hmm. uh, suddenly you have a person that's revealed to you, oh, look, here's this uh, emotional shortcut that yeah. we can use. And as long as we can activate that, we can be very, very effective in 
leading people's thoughts and emotions um, in the pathways that we want them to go. Yeah. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I mean, there's 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 people who uh, are have no truck. They they really don't care in abusing these kind of methods. Right. right. So I mean, I think Paul Manafort, you know, the, the torture lobby, what you call it, right? Yeah. That wants to yeah. work for, you know, communications yeah. consulting for, yeah. for yeah. dictators I, I was going to quote Frank Luntz, uh, but uh, Manafort yeah. is the same kind of thing, right? Frank Luntz, who thought of the word death tax and Obamacare just to scare people, uh, because that's what it does, right? It scares people. Death tax. That's It was a good debate to have, actually, right? There was a good political debate underneath it, but it completely got hijacked by the word death tax. I mean, and then there's, the, there's uh, you know, obviously the, the smaller variances of that too, right? The, the yeah. uh, tax burden, reducing yeah. the tax burden, right? Something heavy carrying on your back versus, uh, you know, versus uh, giving uh, uh, or ha- getting a tax break yeah. versus yeah. Uh, shifting wealth from the poor to the rich in society or, you know, those, yeah. ki- those kind of things or uh, calling someone, uh, um, you know, exploiters or... Uh, yeah. Wage slaves, right? The all all these emotionally uh, yeah. strong, uh, strong words that kind of color the other words around them. In in standard rhetorical theory, I mean, we call that word choice, right? Um, yeah. And it's a, it's a yeah. very kind of strong pathos uh, appeal device. Right. We had uh, in Norway the Norwegian government called um, a certain mining that was uh, causing a lot of environmental damage in a fjord. Uh, a new industrial adventure has launched in our country, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and, yeah. They, and they framed it in the terms of, well, the oil's not going to be here forever. What new, new industries can we build, right? So that was the framework, and in that framework, you you and it's an adventure, right? <laughs> it's yeah. a new industrial yeah. adventure rather than <laughs> yeah. rather than and ecological degradation. And who doesn't like adventure, right? I mean, right. adventure is you know that's we, we want to have adventures, right? And especially uh, economic in general. Yeah, this yeah, this yeah, is going to give us a lot yeah. of money, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So it's it's. Um, so so um, you, you, we talked about that that, that this was uh, kind of a phrasing that can help to adjust perception, not just yeah. like the emotion people have of this, but like in what in what framework they see it. Rather, that kind of that's where we c- the, this framing yeah. comes in, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so a key example that Kahneman also talks about is maybe also very uh, relevant to the current pandemic that we're maybe even experiencing. Um, he talked about, uh, he did some research with uh, his respondents were actually people from the medical field, uh, and he did a thought experiment with them. So he asked, uh, he he put the group into two, I think there's also a third group there with the control group even, uh, but there were two test conditions. So test condition one was um, they had to decide on uh, whether a piece of medicine or a treatment for a for the arrest uh, or previously uh, deadly condition whether it worked yes or no and whether they should uh, should allow it so the information group a got was um, this treatment is new but if you allow it it has a 90 percent survival rate and group b got the same treatment as kind of like a question uh, but then the framing was it has a 10 percent death rate now um, the way he phrased it in the experiment those two were of course uh, cognates of each other they meant the exact same thing so his question was, if you phrase it differently like this, do group A and group B then still come up with a different recommendation? And the answer is yes, they did come up with a different recommendation. The group that was confronted with the framing that said survival rate rec- 
recommended the treatment to a whole lot higher percentage than the group B who was confronted with the word death rate. It was only the word death that scared them in a sense, um, but so that made them not think anymore about what they were actually recommending. So, right. so and it, you, you talk about it's on the one hand, it's about eliciting emotions, but it's at the same time also trying to shape perceptions a little bit. So, and I think these two are very difficult to separate also when it comes to work. Right, because right? that's where it's not just pathos anymore, right? That's uh, where it's True. like, well, if you're changing the whole mental framework in which this should be placed, then it's the logos appeal, really. They were talking about a different logical process, right? So putting yeah. it into a different category. Yeah. Uh, the problem exactly. and the, the the challenge, of course, is I see this the entire uh, all the way all the time in the coronavirus debates in the United States and and in Europe too, for example, where people talk to me. Really, I'm supposed to be scared of something that has uh, a 99 percent chance of not killing me, right? Where 99 percent chance of surviving. You know, yeah. Nobody yeah. survives life. You have a one percent chance of getting hit by a car. You have one percent chance. You know, all these other things, right? Um, whereas if you phrase it the other way, it's just like, look. This is a something that can spread to anyone, and yeah. uh, over a, a general population, one uh, in person in a hundred or one in two hundred, uh, roughly is what we what we're calculating. So uh, one out of every two hundred person will die if you get yeah. this widespread in the entire population. You have one out of hundred or one hundred one out of two hundred dies. Yeah, and then that's yeah. not, that's not even counting the people that will have long-term medical issues that will have, you know, heart problems that are, this attacks the heart, uh, this attacks the brain, um, you know, all those other things. And so just looking at it in that other way, but I'd see from the uh, kind of Trump supporting or the COVID uh, mm -hmm. or the ones that are against uh, restrictions uh, for COVID, they constantly Trump on that 99%, 99% why? Because we're so used to 99 crowns or 99 euros being 100 euros, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. it's no, essentially exactly. 100. 99, yeah. 99 yeah. is the same as as, yeah. as, as same yeah. as 100. So yeah. essentially, there's no chance of all at dying. Is is the uh, yeah. is the idea that you get? But at the same time, uh, the example you're giving also shows that framing is inescapable because um, the Trump supporters uh, would say to you again, uh, well, yes, uh, you're right in the way you say it right now, but you're emphasizing one element. Uh, maybe in rhetorical terms, what you're doing is, in a sense, uh, using a little bit of Kahneman's prospect theory to emphasize the potential loss, and then to use a little bit of Perelman Obergstitica, you're turning a chance into a certainty, where it's, right. it's actually still a chance. Right. Um, I'm not saying this, but this is something that, for example, the Trump supporters could say again, that uh, you are also framing the issue no, in a certain both, way, both in a ways different are, direction. Both ways are framing, it's true, but I true. guess, I guess yeah. the, the, uh, the challenge is um, that that I see with this uh, Kahneman, and I guess uh, he probably would uh, hate his work being used that way, but it, it, it does seem like you then have a shortcut to manipulation instead of doing the hard work True. of persuasion. Um, yeah. And uh, guess what What I'm saying here is, uh, so I wrote this uh, uh, blog post about uh, what's the difference between rhetoric and manipulation. And yeah. um, my definition uh, is that rhetoric depends on individual judgment and thus it respects agency. Manipulation, yeah. on the other hand, tries to make use of automatic responses, neuro neurological pathways and mental reflexes to change one's mind without detection. Yeah. So a perfect yeah. victim for a manipulator will never know what hit him. Yeah. And the mechanism of persuasion is much more, I would say, overt. It involves choice 
um, it it has more freedom implied in it, I guess. That's what you say. Yeah. Uh, also, yeah. manipulation is the kind of method that stops working once you know what's going on, uh, to a certain extent, I'd say. Yeah. Well, One, uh, yeah. I, I like your sentence to a certain extent because right. um, I think something that happened in the past year also is the, the breakthrough of the QAnon movement. And what I find incredibly interesting in that in that movement is, of course, it's a totally bizarre idea. Wow, totally bizarre. And you know, you know what's going to happen? Both of us agree the QAnon movement is totally bizarre. Probably you're now going to get hate mail saying that you're part of actually the secret movement and uh, the entire ring around. I mean, it's, it's, every, it's the rebranded re re protocols it, yeah. of the elders of Sion, right? That's, yeah, that's, but, uh, but what, they, what they do in their movement is they use a lot of the rhetoric that comes with uh, thinking and actually reflecting on things. They weaponize this again to draw you down to the unthinking level. So they use phrases like wake up or educate yourself. Sheeple. Or, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wake up, sheeple. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so I find this incredibly interesting how um, someone like Kahneman, for example, in Thinking Fast and Slow, he has very much a hopeful kind of message still. He says you have these two, two systems and system two, the more reflective, the more, let's call it reasonable system. Rational, um, yeah is actually possible to get at if you create the environment and the circumstances in which you can make a decision. If you make it calmer and less urgent, then of course it, people can reflect actually. And he hopes also, and he invites people to put them in this environment also so that they will reflect a lot more. Um, but then you have on the other side, movements of people who actually weaponize this uh, idea and even make system two rhetoric, uh, use it against it in a sense, right? So I think it's, it's right. interesting how these things get hijacked also. Well, so. I in that's one of the conundrums, I guess, in general of, um, you know, um, you know, why I, I don't understand, by the way, why philosophy gets a, a necessarily a good rap and rhetoric gets a bad rap, because it's not as if um, philosophy has not been used to uh, yeah. create uh, absolutely terrible systems. Uh, yeah. Plato himself was a pro pro-fascist to a certain extent in the sense that he wanted a philosopher king right that yeah that rules others with an iron fist um yeah. it has a very elitist yeah. um <laughs> elitist project in very many ways very good the, yeah uh, the, absolutely the, yeah the people that uh, think better should be able to rule those who think less <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah but yeah. Uh, um i guess the the challenge here is that uh you Someone says there are these two pathways, and one is easy and uh, like reactive, quick. Uh, the other one is slower, uh, takes longer time. I do think the slower one, though, can be more enduring. That's the same thing you say about logos and pathos, right? It's like the, mm -hmm. the emotional appeals can be very, very quick in changing behavior, but only if people are already convinced of the message. Exactly. Right. So, yeah. so if they yeah. already have a logical, they already know. I already know smoking is bad. These, uh, these uh, strong uh, ads, for example, or I already know I shouldn't drive too fast, and some of these ads can really bring that home to me. Oh, yeah. I got kids in the car, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, or I, there may be kids in the other car. Um, and the emotional component then adds kind of a certain edge to the logical. Um, conviction that's already there whereas if you only have the emotional component and there's no logical conviction to kind of rely on beyond that um, as Cicero said nothing dries faster than a tear yeah 
right? Well, well that's uh, yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and so you've you've played on people's emotions, but you haven't really changed them unless there's a kind of a there, there's an underlying uh, yeah. message there. I I'm yeah. wondering if just the way that Donald Kahneman is framing this <laughs> is problematic in itself because it's not like our emotions aren't rational to a certain extent or build on certain rational uh, structures. Yeah. And uh, that um, to a certain extent, the way that scientists have framed this animal brain versus this rational brain uh, in us uh, becomes a in, an invitation to uh, to appeal to that side, the animal instincts, mm-hmm. in many in many ways, for marketing purposes, for yeah. uh, for uh, communication purposes, for persuasion, for winning debates, or etc. and so on. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering if the reality isn't more multifaceted than that, and that this is kind of a caricature of how our brain works, rather than an a full, complete, accurate description. Yeah. To answer that question, uh, Kahneman is absolutely clear on this. He says, uh, what I'm writing about when I write about system one and system two is absolutely uh, a useless generalization. So it is absolutely not what is actually happening in the brain. But I use this metaphor, and he, he calls it out as a metaphor also, just so I, uh, so I can enable myself to explain a lot of the things that I found in my research. But please, it, it almost sounds like he's pleading when he wrote the book, like, please don't take it too serious, and please don't run away with it too much um, and the because the human brain is so will. much more complicated that's, uh, <laughs> and yeah. so the but then, and so the but disciples will always take what they can use in the moment right that i think in in the public perception of the uh, of kahneman's work what you see a lot is indeed uh, over exaggerations like this um just like you 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 just quoted Cialdini saying click were that's how a lot of people use kahneman's work these days it's just oh press this button and then you get this response right um and unfortunately yes if you if you if you approach people this way, then that's also behavior that you will indeed elicit. Absolutely. Um, so for, for a large part, there is something partly empirically true about this. And at the same time, that also means that it's also empirically true. If you approach people with a more system two kind of approach, invite them to reflect more, don't do hot politics, but do cool politics, right? So that's people take a little bit of distance from that. Um, then that they come up with more reflective and more reasonable kind of thoughts. Definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I also have a very worry that uh, with the com- combination with social media, right? I mean, it's social media is very system one, right? It's just yeah. like if we're yeah. going to use that that uh, that metaphor again, it's just um, you know you have uh, all these trigger words you can tell, you know, just like hate or disgusting or you know, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, and we've we've just. We just have no medium scale, and a lot of people have said this, right? We have no medium scale on the emotions. It's either super good or super bad, right? It's just like super yeah. plus good, as they would say in the party in 1984. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's, it, it's, it becomes... Uh, I'm wondering to what extent this description of the human mind uh, and these tools become self-fulfilling prophecies, right? They, yeah. we, we base... Uh, we have people with a lot of money and influence... Uh, Pouring in, um, uh, pouring in money and resources to affect system one, and so because of yeah. that, our brain gets very sensitive to sen- to to system one. Yeah. We become hyper, uh, you know, hyper activized. We can become through social media. Just uh, it seems like there's a fad 
every single month. Now you have to be against this. Now you have to be for yeah. this. Uh, and yeah. if you don't post this on your page, then uh, you're uh, choose your expletive, right? <laughs> or choose yeah. your choose uh, your slur. And and I think it goes even further than this. So I said in the beginning, I also train a lot of academics, um, beginning academics, but also older academics. Um, one of the things I'm, I realized, uh, we had a talk before, and then I was thinking like, okay, what other anecdotes can I share? There's one thing I was, uh, I noticed in myself was a little bit disappointed with. So um, there was an academic um, doing an exact science, brilliant, brilliant person, absolutely, doing a PhD, which was also a legend contribution and then where did this person end up after he or she I'm not going to say reveal the gender here but he or she uh, finished her uh, defense or his defense well uh, at Facebook and uh, what does a person at Facebook do well you know what they do is they test whether a specific color scheme makes people click angrily a little bit more or a little bit less that's what they do so that right. considerable brain talent that would would have maybe been able to invent the grand unifying theory that physics has been waiting for for the past hundred years already that mind is now wasted on saying should it be magenta or should it be a little bit more red i don't know right i mean and that's what facebook hires that's what google hires that's what every major software company hires well, just who, to steer us a little bit in a kind of, kind of a mini direction well, like and that. who can, I who found who that can compete with them right who can who can uh, lure talent with the same kind of financial resources and the same and you know we put them on front of our magazines and we yeah uh, we uh, yeah. celebrate them right so they're the man of the air etc they're, they are the heroes right now. So, of course, you want to work at a startup, even though Facebook doesn't count as a startup anymore. No, no, but no. Even, they, of they, course, they are established giants. Yeah, exactly. But, of course, you if you get an invite there, you feel honored. You know, Google is inviting you to become a big part of their Royalty. huge, yeah. mind-consuming machine. That's uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Wow, am I yeah. going a bit far here? I don't know. That's so, like, I guess, yeah. I guess uh, <laughs> in an ideal world, right? In an ideal ro- world, um, people that study these kind of things in academia should be able to uh, you know, police this to a certain extent, right? We should be able to to warn about these kind of tendencies. Uh, we should be able to uh, to call out unethical uh, communication mm-hmm. practices, like um, uh, Christian Koch. You know, he wrote a book uh, for journalists, where it's saying essentially how to counter the uh, the uh, communication advisors uh, when politicians don't answer a question. It's called they're not they're not answering. Yeah. Um, and how to yeah. counter those kind of diversion tactics. I, I mean, I remember looking, watching a documentary about the uh, Magnitsky uh, money laundering and, and a case from, from Russia. Mm-hmm. And uh, instead of uh, meeting for the Swedbank, I believe it was, uh, didn't meet for an interview with the journalist, they just sent a communications consultant um, to that interview. And uh, they were asked, uh, so you said there were no red flags and we found tons of red flags about mm-hmm. money laundering uh, in your bank operation. Uh, was that correct? And the communications consultant always then said, well, uh, we should. I believe we should look at uh, the whole of the communication that has been sent from the company, not just one isolated incident, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. To In order yeah. to avoid saying, yes, we lied. Yeah. Yes, yeah. we lied, or yeah. I was uh, uninformed when I said that. Yeah. So, so what, what I think is important about this is also that... Um, because they become liable for lawsuits, right? Or something like that, right? Yeah. 
there's always a legal aspect to it, of course. That's a, it's a thing that you always have to keep in mind when it comes to situations like this. Never admit anything. At the same time, <laughs> I think there's also a huge, huge problem with the way our media works. I mean, you pointed to social media uh, just a few minutes before. Right. But when it comes to, to media in general, um, a thing that journalists, for example, love to do is point specific blame to people. Right. Whereas sometimes a thing is an institutional thing and we have to have an institutional discussion. We don't do that because it's easier to just say that guy, he's a bad guy, right? This right. these feed, categories feed on, feed on scandal and like to yeah. use the the top yeah. the topos of the uh, of the uh, corrupt businessman or the topos of this and exactly the, exactly right the, the and, executive and, right. Yeah, exactly. And and oftentimes I find when I train people to to deal with journalists, um, oftentimes I find um, that, you know, it's uh, a lot of my clients, actually all of my clients, of course, they want to speak the truth and they want to actually say everything they need to say also. But they also, you know, they, but then they, the questions they get are so much about different kinds of things that are actually irrelevant about uh, what they're actually about. Right. Uh, to name one example, um, it's the person I didn't train. Uh, from a political party in the Netherlands, uh, D66, um, Rob Jetten. He was supposed, he's, he was like the interim party leader after the big leader now left. And now he, and then there's new elections coming. So there's a new party leader coming up. Right. It was but a defining he, time, yeah, time period, right? Yeah. But what, when he was, uh, he was uh, anointed as the new uh, political leader of the fraction in parliament, um, he was a young guy. He was, I think, 30 at the time. But, but what I found excruciating was um, okay, he's a young guy, but he's also the leader of a relevant party right now, right? It was a middle kind of party. So, okay. Um, you could ask that guy all kinds of questions about what does this mean for the coalition you're in? What does this mean given your voting record so far about what you're going to say about issue one, two, three, whatever, like, for example, housing, like whatever. The first question he got, not just once, but literally by the first 30 journalists that approached him was, aren't you a bit young to be a political leader of your party so far? 30 times he gets that question. And of course, he was well-trained, not by me, but by someone else. But he was well-trained to say, well, uh, what's important is the content and blah, 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 blah. So he gave a cleanly polished answer to that question um, simply because he could predict together with his own marketing and communication team, he could kind of like predict this is the question that journalists ask. Right. Are you not young enough for the job? Well, you know, who cares? Ask that question once you get an answer, then you're done with it. Talk about the content right now. So, so I think... I think it's easy to put the blame on communications advisors a lot. Um, I think there's also systemically um, there's a lot wrong with how our media basically works. That's, I mean, because because uh, what they're what they're looking for is headlines, right? And so uh, yeah. they 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 search for the scandal, the conflict. Yeah. Um, you know, that's again, you know, with some of their training as far as you know what drives clicks and and so on. Yeah. Right? Uh, the, yeah. But they search for the con for the conflict. There's, there's, it's not just uh, objective reporting. It's trying to lure out something, right? So, yeah. um, they they will. You know, I was I was told this also. You know, they talk to a journalist, and you can say a hundred positive things. If you say one thing that's negative, that's what they'll write the yeah. case on. Yeah. Yeah, there's actually a professor at uh, the VU University, Jaap Klein Nijenhuis, a free university of Amsterdam, uh, who researched this. And if if I remember correctly, but maybe talk to him if you want to know this more in detail. Uh, he once did like you know a categorization, accounting, and uh, coding of all the headlines, and he found out that most of the, the headlines are usually either a conflict, people disagreeing with each other and fighting with each other, right. or what is called a horse race news. So someone is losing, and then usually you want to talk about someone losing actually. 
um, or other kinds of problem stuff. So the old saying that we have is that uh, um, there's no such thing as bad news or there's no such thing as uh, bad publicity. In a sense, that is absolutely true because every headline always needs to have something negative, right? We have so much more problems and in fact, we actually don't have them. But if you read the newspaper, it's always about problems because that is what makes the headline. I remember I saw some headlines at uh, Norwegian tabloids and uh, it was just a picture of an actress and it said, butchered. You know, it's like she actually got butchered. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, she oh, got wow, she got butchered. She got butchered by the uh, by the critics. You know, but still, it's just like <laughs> that was the only thing it said. It's like this 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 act, this actress and then butchered. You know, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like that's that's, mor- that's quite morbid. Oh. Uh, oh, yeah, or you have uh, this uh, saying oh, wow. in Norway where uh, the politicians when they uh, when there's uh, an attack from one politician to another, går i strupen på så it's like he he attacks the throat. You know, it went yeah. straight into the throat of the person, like with with his with his teeth. <laughs> in, in English, you would say going for the juggler. That's, yes, uh, yeah, juggler. exactly. That's a, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like, but but they say that all the time. Like any any yeah. any criticism of another politician is yeah. going straight yeah. for the juggler. And, and this is very interesting. This is something, for example, um, George Lakoff also talked about when uh, in his first book, "Metaphors We Live By," if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, in which he found out, and this is something that is reaffirmed in many pieces of empirical research afterwards, um, he found that when we talk about disagreement and when we talk about decision processes or democratic decision processes, we often use the word, uh, the, the metaphor for war to explain what is happening, or not just war, but conflict or physical conflict or people hitting each other. So if someone makes an argument, then we usually describe it as like a killer argument or indeed going for the for the throat in a sense, right? That's those are the words that we use to describe disagreement. But but why? Right? That's why do we keep doing it like substitute for substitute for violence, right? Sometimes you see that as a Uh, of course partly yes. Partly yes it is frozen frozen violence. But yeah it's yeah it's it's more of a it's more of a learning process really it's kind yeah. of a, more of a yeah, uh, yeah. and, and uh, I just I guess just want to circle back to so the ethical implications of this obviously you're in this saturated world and the media are obviously uh, partially to blame uh, there are the political candidates themselves who choose the easier uh, immoral way you could say rather than the um, than the uh, uh, more moral, uh, but perhaps the more difficult road of persuasion rather than manipulation. Say it that to way. To be clear, that's always the other politicians, right? That's right, right. Uh, it's not the politicians never, never own. No, and, I, and I'm wondering <laughs> if, and again, the other politicians are saying, well, this obviously works, so we won't uh, unilaterally disarm, and so you have yeah. a, a rhetorical escalation of war uh, or manipulation um, yeah. until you have. What I fear is really if you if you have if you're able to uh, actually uh, convince your own voters that the other person and by implication their voters uh, are literally Satan, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and you know, the, go, we've gone from capitalist communist to um, to to racists, fascists, um, you know, to essentially like. Your, there's something not just the system that you subscribe to, but there's something personally wrong with you. Yeah, uh, you yeah. are personally deficient. Um, if you could ever vote for this person, uh, yeah. right? Um, you really do have the precursor to war. True. You ha- yeah. you ha- you, ha- you do have True. and and 
it comes again because it works on the short run, right? You win the battle, but you lose the war. You, it works works short term um, to to build these th- to build these system one arguments, uh, these click war, these uh, these fast uh, arguments. But as a result, you undermine the foundation of a democratic system. Because you have you yeah. have mass weaponization well, of of uh, <laughs> of these uh, uh, of this instinctive emotional uh, increasingly tribal I find yeah. thinking yeah. Um, and if there is no space for that system two kind of thinking you can't have those we see a backroom deals right you, well, how can you make a, a compromise with those who are essentially your enemies. Uh, who you have already told, and and you're locked in also as a politician because how can you work with these people that you have branded as enemies of the people, enemies of society, um, mentally deficient, emotionally stunted, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, in every yeah. way, in every way unsuitable, right? There's there's no room for that overlap of 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 uh, of reason, um, of compassion. Uh, yeah. sense of yeah. commonality. Yeah. Right? Well, um, there is an answer to this. And, uh, Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, and unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately, I'm going to sound like a 60s hippie here, but uh, the answer is love. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> why is the answer love? I have to say this also. Um, so what you see happening, uh, I don't know how this is in Norway, but what you see happening a lot in uh, election uh, politics or election communication these days is that um, what they do is they pluck a little bit from narrative theory. So they say, when you're in an election debate or when you're making an ad or when you're doing a branding campaign or whatever, um, there's always a few things that you need to do. And then they, um, they, they use, as it were, uh, like a narrative theory as a template to design the story that they're telling. Now, the interesting thing when it comes to narrative theory is that there's, of course, different kind of templates that you can use. So what is used a lot these days, uh, more than maybe 20 years ago or 50 years ago, uh, it was used a lot actually before, again, still. But what is used these days is the classical story of the hero overcoming evil. And then, for example, populist parties, they cast themselves as the hero and the evil is people coming from outside, or asylum seekers. Or, yeah. Yeah, or the elites also at the same time, right? The pedophile elites, yeah. Story structure-wise, you can even like paint these in different roles, right? So you have the the dumb evil versus the actual evil. So, um, so for example, Geert Wilders from the PVV, he used the word tsunami to describe Muslims, right? The tsunami right. of Muslims instead. Right. Very dangerous kind of metaphor. Um, but but that's a typical portrayal of like the big dumb evil. And at the same time, there's now a political party, Forum for Democracy, by Thierry Baudet, who then also says this is the big dumb evil, people coming from outside of the Netherlands. But there's the the greater intelligent evil behind it. That's the group of what he calls cultural Marxists. Um, that's the academic elite. That is uh, everyone. You know, that's there's a story behind that too. But that is only one type of story. Like yeah, if you and, go and that's to the, the same, few, this cultural Marxist thing is the same in every country now. I think. Yeah. That that's amazing, right? I mean, yeah. it's a story that you can you know make fit anywhere because it's a story, right? That's right. The, the, that's what stories are. They you can always put the template everywhere. Right. But so, you were saying, but, sorry, yeah. So this is this is just when you when you look towards the world of narrative theory, That's that is the one specific story. 
type of story that you're telling. This type of story is the classical hero kind of story. But um, there are other types of stories that we can tell to each other. And, th and this is where the answer suddenly becomes love. So um, if you take, for example, the book by a guy called Christoph Booker, um, unfortunately passed away uh, not so long ago, um, he says there are seven basic types of plot. Um, I'm not quite sure how academically relevant that book actually is, but he says one uh, other uh, the so one plot is the typical hero story who slays a dragon and then kills the evil the other type of story that you can also have is a romantic comedy and a romantic comedy is where two people meet each other they first look in the first half of the movie as if they're going to be dead enemies but anyone who knows the movie and who knows the genre knows from minute one already they're going to end up together and then somewhere at the end in the halfway of the movie or somewhere towards the climax of the movie that's where you have the classical catharsis happening where the man, usually it's the man, says, I was a dick, I made a mistake, and then there's a big turnaround going on, and then they live along happy ever after. Right? It's the you complete me moment. Uh, for those who know their romantic comedies, they would go, yes, he knows the movies. That's, uh, yeah. Um, what's interesting about this different story type is that um, you have space for enmity, you have space for disagreement, you have space for people not understanding each other, and also fundamentally not understanding each other, as in their there are really literally um, uh, differences between people. Mm -hmm. But the end of the story is always how people overcome their differences and how they come together and how there's hope and faith and love in the future also, right? So, mm -hmm. um, and that's what I think in election communication, we could use a lot more of like, you know, portraying campaign season, portraying debates a little bit more as like a marriage or a process towards a marriage where people have their misunderstandings. How do you see your coalitions gently, uh, slowly forming, right? Political parties finding agreement, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Right. That's the, yeah. So that's that's the idea. And no, the, um, the, so the, the the challenge is to uh, to uh, use this form for uh, for men who are not very familiar with the form and don't like it. Yeah. That's, <laughs> well, interesting enough. If you talk to scenario writers, they say that the romantic comedy and the hero movie, both of them, they have the exact same story beats. So right. if you just change the words a bit and if you just change the characters a bit and the, the description of characters a bit, you actually literally get the same kind of story. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, but that's something I don't know that much about. It's just something that they tell me. But um, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Oh, it reminds me uh, a little bit of uh, Isocrates' uh, epideictic on language, right? Where he says, only powerful persuasion could get a person that is more powerful than everyone else to relinquish that power uh, and uh, be willingly part of a system where um, he doesn't get... or." This person or this faction or this group doesn't get as much power to yield to wield as mm -hmm. they may want, but what they mm -hmm. get in, in return is uh, is kind of a communal protection and a sense of community with the others instead of always having to sleep yeah. on their sleep on their swords and uh, and have to um, uh, always worry about uh, the next strong person coming to dispossess them of their wealth and their their uh, their. Uh, Woman and their, <laughs> their nice. and then their house, right? Um, yeah, it's a book I need to read. I think. Yeah, yeah that's uh, well. It's <laughs> it's uh, in uh, Antidosis by uh, Isocrates. Ah, good. And yeah. uh, it's referred to again by Cicero in uh, De Oratore. It's uh, essentially how how persuasion leads or is the basis for peace.
Very good. Yeah. And I, I, I hope it can be, definitely. That's uh, Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. so I guess, yeah, I think this is a good place uh, to end it at, that there are, there are solutions here. Um, I'm always an advocate for um, more academics uh, cooperating with and helping to, to frame these kind of conditions of debate and so on. Um, I think if you don't approach the human mind with a kind of humanistic understanding, you do really end up with caricatures. You end up with these helpful and metaphors that would get taken as true. Um, you end up with a very kind of one-dimensional picture of the human mind, and that if in, in turn uh, affects the way we treat humans. So we tra- treat humans as response mechanisms to uh, to certain buttons, yeah. as robots, essentially, yeah. then... Yeah that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. We become robots because we have those buttons pulled that o- pulled pushed that often. Yeah. Uh, that the other part of our mind just kind of deteriorates or, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. yeah. What, what, what's that called? Uh, when some, when a, a muscle that's used very little, uh, becomes atrophies. 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 There we go. That's yeah. the word. Exactly. Yeah. Our, our yeah. mind atrophies and we essentially become these response mechanisms able to take up, minutes of indignation uh, but yeah. not uh, a long process of change yeah yeah but very good all right oh thank yeah well, sorry i was just yeah i think that's uh, almost a good place to end i don't know what uh, do you have other thoughts to add to that it's out of the crooked timber of humanity we can make s- things straight i think that's uh, maybe a thing we could also say so let's uh, let's hope for that one yes uh, yeah great <laughs> yeah all, all right. right thank you yeah so now you're going to pause the recording, I assume, and that's uh, well, yeah. I haven't yet, but yes, I will. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you can always cut this part off, right? That's uh, no, no, yeah. no. I'll turn <laughs> off your sound now and put on the jingle. Thank you for joining us for the uh, Rhetorical Leadership Podcast, uh, and uh, join us again for the next episodes with more interesting insights. Thank you very much.